Welcome to Securiosity for November 1st. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. Facebook is going hard at a private surveillance company. We will break down what it means for both Facebook and the company's future. In our interview, we talk with Jeff Massimilla, VP of Cyber at General Motors. Jeff talks to us about what it's like overseeing cybersecurity for one of the world's largest car makers. And we talk about what kind of car he drives. Lots of early stage funding news to get to. It's been two weeks since we last spoke to you, and there's just been a flurry of early stage activity. And we know that's Jen's wheelhouse. So we will break down everything that sounds interesting and what sounds like every other company on the market. Let's get to it. For years, security researchers have documented how spyware made by NSO Group has been used to surveil human rights defenders. On Tuesday, Facebook said enough is enough. The social media giant sued the Israeli vendor for allegedly violating a federal anti-hacking law during an April and May attack that affected some 1,400 devices. NSO Group rejected allegations and vowed to fight the suit. In an op-ed in the Washington Post, WhatsApp chief Will Cathcart called the attack a wake-up call for tech companies and governments that the spyware industry is thriving. Greg, wow, an actual piece of news for Facebook. Yeah, this is, uh, I would say, a piece of, uh, of good news for Facebook good news. because yeah. they, they are actually doing uh, the right thing here. Um, this is a, a, a really, really aggressive uh, tactic uh, toward NSO Group. Uh, the lawsuit looks like it's discovered uh, NSO's Pegasus was deployed on 1,400 mobile devices that all were running WhatsApp. So they were actually going after WhatsApp. And it looks like they hit human rights advocates, journalists, and just plain old you know, people that have no real standing in the, the cybersecurity or the technology world. These are just users of uh, the chat app. So um, Facebook, uh, like you said, Facebook said, uh, enough's enough, and it's time to stop this. And since it's uh, come out, uh, the lawsuit, it looks like there were some targets that were based in the U.S. There were some in the United Arab Emirates. There were some in Bahrain. Um, I'm trying to think where else. I think there was India as well. So it's clear that this is a, a global fight and one that uh, Facebook and WhatsApp is – they're clearly ready to uh, – fight a long protracted court fight over making sure that their platforms are safe from this kind of action. Have you seen other um, lawsuits like this against NSO Group from this kind of platform? No, uh, this is the first that uh, I can remember okay. that one of the, the platforms that, uh, you know, they because th this Pegasus tool goes after uh, particularly mobile phones and applications on mobile phones. So uh, if we were to see any of these lawsuits, um, I mean, uh, there might be some that are sealed that we don't know about, but I don't think that that's the case because I, I think that these companies would want to go as public as possible if they were filing these types of lawsuits. So uh, this is the first one that uh, I can remember seeing. And it's, you know, you, Talking about that lawsuit, it's it's really really interesting because uh, the discovery part of this already has been interesting. There are some exhibits in the lawsuit that show like some really technical details for how NSO Group rolls out this platform to customers, and there is a contract that NSO Group has signed with the government of Ghana 
on, on how exactly it is they provide support and the tools that they have given the government. So uh, WhatsApp put a lot of NSO groups uh, information on blast just out there for anybody interested to see it. So that's why I I use the term aggressive. This, they're, they're not messing around. Like they, they do not want any parts of NSO group going after their users, going after their applications, going after their platforms. And they're going to go as hard as they can from a legal, legal perspective. I mean, this literally might be the first time and maybe the only time we're going to say good job, Facebook. Uh, this is uh, a win. I mean, there's no other way to uh, put it for, for Facebook. This is, the, this is a human rights um, case and Facebook is positioning it as such. And I mean, they're, yeah, I mean, they're going after this as hard as possible. Cathcart's quote in the Washington Post's op-ed, government and companies need to do more to protect vulnerable groups and individuals from these mobile attacks. And hey, uh, so Facebook's going to step up and try to do that. Uh, Good on them. Definitely good on them. So concerned about the lack of federal progress on vulnerability disclosure programs, DHS officials are considering ordering agencies to set them up themselves. Multiple officials set a draft binding operational directive has long been in the works and could be issued within the next few months. These directives typically are a tool of last resort when other means of prodding agencies to clean up their cybersecurity aren't working. Fewer than 10 civilian agencies have vulnerability disclosure programs which allow them to receive bug reports from independent researchers. Jen, I gotta think this sounds like a good idea. It sounds like a great idea. How many civilian agencies are there, just to put it in perspective for everybody? So uh, it's in the low 20s that there are what's known as CFO Act agencies. And what that means is there, uh, basically there's a a law that says if you have uh, a chief financial officer or or if you're bound by this chief financial officer's counsel, basically you're you're considered in in the eyes of uh, the legal world, a quote unquote federal agency. Now, obviously there are more than 24 uh, agencies or offices. I think there's there's like smaller stuff. Think about like um, the Consumer Financial Protection Board or the the Safety. Uh, I forget the the acronym, but the um, Consumer Safety Commission, something like that. Um, they're not covered under the CFO Act, but right. you know, the CFO Act. Think the big ones like Department of State, Department of Energy, Department of Transportation, like the really big ones that often have. Uh, presidential appointee at the top and and sort of make up the cabinet. So I I would say somewhere, if you're talking about agencies that need to have a vulnerability disclosure program, I'm going to say you're probably somewhere like 35 to 50 uh, uh, federal offices. Um, Yeah. And and to be clear, I, I think this is a good idea because this is literally just setting up policies and putting out an email address that allows a researcher to get in touch if they find uh, a flaw in a website or a system that might be, you know, publicly facing on the internet. Like, I, I don't understand why agencies haven't set this up already. Because wouldn't you rather have somebody contact you than have a hacker go after it and not contact you and you know have another OPM. It, it just, it just it, I mean, it's just shocking yeah. that today in 2019, 
you know, this isn't in place already and that they have to be ordered to do it. Um, that there's not someone thinking maybe we should get this yeah. done. And already. to be clear, this isn't exactly in law yet. Like this hasn't been pushed out by DHS. They are working on it. And we have been told uh, at CyberScoop that, that it might be a couple months before this in fact is a reality. So definitely something that we're watching, but it, it, it's clear that it's becoming, it, it's becoming obvious to DHS specifically at CISA that they need to force agencies' hands because the agencies just aren't doing it. And right. uh, it, it, it just, like, <laughs> I'm at a loss for words because it's just so easy to set something up like this that it, it just needs to be done. So if they need to force it, so be it. That's fine. So Norsic Hydro received an insurance payout of $3.6 million following a highly publicized cyber attack earlier this year. The company revealed in its third quarter report. The insurance payout represents 6% of the $60 million to $71 million in costs created by the incident through the third quarter, the company said. The Norwegian aluminum and energy giant expects more compensation will come as more costs are totaled. Norsic Hydro, which had a market cap of $12 billion last year, said after the attack in March that its policy, led by AIG, was solid. The incident started in Norsic Hydro's U.S. facilities, then spread, and it wasn't until summer when the company determined the situation was stable. Greg, what does that mean for cyber insurance? Uh, I know that a lot of people are watching this case because even though Norsk uh, says their policy was solid. I mean, uh, look at the payout there. The payout, $3.6 million compared to losses and costs that are 60 to $71 million. Um, that That's not a lot of money. And there's probably a lot of companies out there that are sitting and going, wait, if I have this policy, is that all I'm going to get? Because I, I obviously need more. Like, I need total coverage. Right. So. Uh, it, it goes to show that this is what happens when you have something that is in its nascent stages. I mean, we've talked about this numerous times on the podcast. The actuarial tables for cyber insurance haven't been adjusted for what is actually happening out there during attacks. So um, I, I think we're a ways away from having total coverage and, and something that actually it covers everything associated with the cyber crime. I really don't like we're getting there, but I don't think the cyber uh, insurance providers are fully understanding the way that all of this works. Now, with that said, Norsk has said that, oh, we might get some more payouts from AIG, but even if Norsk gets 15 million, 15 million for 60 million in losses and costs, that's, was it really worth it? Like what was the cyber insurance really worth it? Or was it, would it have been better just to spend that money as part of security budget? I mean, that, I think CISOs are reading what's going on with Norsk and really asking themselves that question. Like what's, where is the risk here? Where do I need to spend myself to eliminate my risk? Is it in my own security budget or do I buy the cyber insurance? And personally, if I was a CISO, I would just go out and buy some more products. Like I, I don't need to buy cyber insurance and then figure out that I'm only covered for 30% of what I'm losing. Like my CFO, my CEO, my board isn't going to like that at all. And then I'm out of a job no matter what. So I'd rather just spend 15 million or, or, or the 45, whatever it is that the costs are 
and whatever it is that that total ends up being, just spending it trying to protect myself as much as possible. And then maybe buying a smaller insurance just to make sure that I have a little bit of coverage. It just, it's, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, I feel like when it comes to uh, cyber insurance. So um, TBD. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really clear that no one understands cyber insurance yet. The insurance companies don't understand yet. Um, so we'll sort of see how this goes. So we were talking about Facebook earlier, and there was another story that we didn't get to last week. Facebook on Monday became the latest big tech company to try to do something to protect the integrity of the 2020 election. It just rolled out a security program that will offer monitoring for hacking attempts to candidates and election officials. Facebook also revealed the latest takedown of foreign information campaigns, including an operation linked to Russia's internet agency, the Troll Forum, that wreaked havoc in 2016. Jen, this seems smart, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's great, right? The more that you know, the Facebook and Twitter's of the world can do. I think we also saw um, Twitter announce that they're not going to let political ads happen. Um, so that's a good thing. Um, and certainly not letting candidates get hacked is, is a really good thing. Right. And and the, obviously the Facebook ad thing has been the the talk of DC for yes. a week now. And, and going back to that Twitter announcement, I felt like that was a layup for Twitter overall. Really like that, that they're realizing that it's not really about free speech. It's about the, the ad targeting and, and the reach that you can have if you sign a big enough check. I, I don't understand why uh, Facebook can't see this and why Mark Zuckerberg and, and Sheryl Sandberg and all of them don't really understand that. I can guess why. I'm not going to be naive. I think a lot of what Zuckerberg is saying with regards to the political ad problem is disingenuous, but at the same time, um, it just goes to show how easy it is to really understand this and just go, you know what, we, we don't need this. And I thought that Twitter made a good move by saying, you know what, Let, let's just keep political ads off our platform. I, I don't need this problem at all. And I don't think anybody else does either. So that was smart. Um, yeah, but yes, Facebook is smart to do this as well, this security program that monitors hacking attempts. Um, I mean, that's great, but... It's great. It's smart, and that should happen. But we—I don't think we've seen any real news about campaigns being hacked. I mean, the the real action on Facebook is all of disinformation. So they're continuing to take all of that down. But obviously, the big focus is still the political advertising, and that's—it's just obviously for anybody that's been paying attention, they know it's really bad right now. So Cyber Command was on the verge of again publicly calling out Lazarus Group for targeting the financial sector and ATM transactions in late September, but ultimately backed off the plan by early October. The announcement was supposed to be part of a Cyber Command effort to share malware samples on virus total, an effort intended to call it advisory-linked hacking in order to deter hacks in the future. It wasn't clear why the decision was made to refrain from publicly posting malware samples this time around, despite the fact that Cyber Command has done so numerous times in recent months. It certainly didn't appear to be an issue of accuracy. The Pentagon outfit still decided to share private advisories with threat intelligence companies and the financial sector. Greg, what do you think happened here? Uh, I think it had to do with some other diplomatic efforts that were going on. Uh, I know that uh, if you read our story, we talk a lot about how... You know, this announcement 
seemed to be, I don't want to say it was linked because we don't know for sure, but uh, it was happening around the time uh, that there were some diplomatic talks that North Korea was going to come to the table and start talking about uh, de-escalation when it comes to their, their nuclear program. So um, I, I would not be surprised if that ended up being the link there. But uh, look, it's clear that uh, I, I think that this program is working because if it was taken off the table due to diplomatic talks around North Korea's nuclear program, that means that North Korea is paying attention to what we're doing and publicly shaming the, the malware samples and saying, hey, we're going to burn your operations seems to have kicked up a little dust over right. in North Korea. I mean, I think one of these stories that we talked about, they dropped it on a holiday, like an actual holiday in North Korea. And I would imagine that that got some people's attention. There were some operators that um, you know needed to sit at their desk instead of watching those bizarre parades that we see. Um, so I, I would not be surprised if the, the diplomat the diplomats and the diplomatic side of things said, hey, no, 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 let's, uh, we got Worthers doing this. Let's not do this and let's pull back and, and let's see how um, uh, this works just on, on the private side of things. Because look, those, those malware samples still went out. We talked to sources that on the private side that still got them. There just wasn't any public display. They didn't post them to a virus total. So there's clear there's some, you know, levers being pulled behind the scenes and it certainly lines up with what's going on on the diplomatic side of things. I mean, honestly, that doesn't sound terrible, right? As long as people are still made aware, I mean, privately, but it's still, it's still progress. Yes, absolutely. Um, it goes to, uh, you know, the information sharing side of things too. Um, at Cyber Talks, I talked with uh, Ann Neuberger, uh, the NSA cybersecurity uh, directorate head, and I asked her, um, you know, what can you do to, or how do you feel about information sharing? And said, look, we need to get better. We're doing things to get better. There's still a lot of work that needs to go into it, but we're right. trying to get better because we know we need to be better for the private sector and, and just for the, the, the greater cyber cybersecurity community out there. And I think that, you know, efforts like this and, and, and all of the moving parts go to show that. They're, they're cognizant, like that. that's not just lip service, what Newberger told me, like they're actually out there trying to make things better, but there's still a lot of moving parts to all of this. So Microsoft is pushing an initiative meant to protect its computer's most sensitive data amid recent revelations that nation state hackers are beginning to exploit the fragmented nature of the company's supply chain. The company started pushing secured core PCs, its term for machines that will come with Windows 10, Microsoft's latest operating system, Windows Hello, which allows users to log in without a password, and most importantly, silicon microchips built by Intel, Qualcomm, and AMD that are meant to closely guard sensitive data. By ensuring that PCs are loading legitimate Windows operating systems when a device activates, the plan goes, Microsoft will ensure that users aren't actually loading a malicious OS inserted by an outsider. Jen, uh, another good idea that we're talking about this week. This is a really good idea. I'm not sure I exactly follow how it works. Um, so I'm kind of interested in learning more. Um, but, but a really good idea. Um, it's great to see companies trying to be more secure for end users. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, look, this it's 
this is what needed to be done in the wake of Meltdown and Spectre. Uh, yes. So I'm really interested and in, and I think it's really interesting that the silicon microchip thing was put in. I mean, Intel, Qualcomm, AMD, they were going to have to push new chips. So the incident clearly gave them the time to go, okay, what else can we do to make sure that we're good from a supply chain standpoint? And wrapping all of this together and putting it in a computer and pushing it out as a, uh, as a actual product that people can buy, it's, it's smart. And uh, look, we've seen Intel do more. We've seen every company involved here. We've spoken to about what they're doing in the wake of Spectre and Meltdown, and they've obviously taken it very, very seriously since it just kneecapped everything that they've put out over the past like, yeah. 10, 15 years. So uh, they're taking it very, very seriously. And this is a good step to making sure that we're not having the same problems five or 10 years down the road. So speaking of Microsoft, while voting equipment vendors have yet to embrace bug bounty programs, Microsoft has established one for its open source voting software. The company said Friday that researchers can earn up to $15,000 for finding high-impact vulnerabilities in targeted areas of the election guard software that Redmond rolled out in May. The software allows voters to ensure their ballot is counted by giving each person a unique code to track the encrypted version of their vote. Microsoft has posted the source code for election guard to GitHub, but it will take time for election officials to adapt. Craig, another great idea for Microsoft. Yeah, um, this is really, really interesting. It's really, really smart. Um, also, because uh, I know that Election Guard is relatively new. I mean, they put it out a couple months ago, and it's been up on their GitHub page. And anybody who wants to use it in their systems can already use it. But to already have that bug bounty put on something that hasn't even really reached a, uh, for lack of a better term, a, a mainstream use in this election security community. It's really, really smart. Uh, I, I mean, I, I've talked to some Microsoft officials uh, about uh, Election Guard and they're really, really pushing. This. I, I should say they're really, really pushing it, but they're, they're really, really uh, smart about understanding how things need to change with election security and they want to help out in any way that they can. And I think that this program, this election guard really goes to show that they're trying to get it out there and, and they want to make sure that it's out there and they want to make sure that they're doing everything that they can to protect uh, elections in the U S I mean, and besides the fact that if they can prove to be more secure than everything else, right. A bigger market share. Um, well, it's funny that, you talk about the market share thing because I said to uh, some officials that I talked to, um, you know, well, why aren't you doing more or why aren't you getting into the hardware side of things or why aren't you making this part of, uh, you know, uh, the business, like sell this as a product. And they were like, we don't want to do that. They were just flat out. They were like, we're not interested. We're not interested in doing it at all. The only thing we're interested in doing is helping protect our systems that are already out there. And if new systems get spooled up, they can use this product as well. And that's it. It's just not part of our business, which, I mean, I, I, I could see if they wanted to make it a part of their business. I would actually think it's kind of smart, but they're like, no, you know what? We're just, this is just, it, it is what it is. It's a, it's a free program and, and we will roll it out for free. And this is, this is what it is. So yeah, good idea. 
Virtual private network provider NordVPN, which operates in more than 60 countries, was breached last year after an outsider infiltrated a Finnish data center, the firm said Monday. NordVPN said it learned on March 2018 about the intrusion, which occurred on a server that NordVPN rents from another company. The hacker leveraged an unprotected remote management system left exposed by the data center. Independent researchers on Twitter have suggested the hacker had full remote control over the affected server. Greg, is there any way that this isn't a kiss of death for Nord? I can't see that. I mean, they're still like pushing their products. I, I hear their ads all the time on other podcasts. But I mean, when if even though this seems to be a small incident, if you are routing traffic for other customers and it looks like somebody is watching that traffic, I mean, that, that totally kneecaps what you're, the service you're providing. VPNs are supposed to be a, a secure way to route your traffic. And if somebody is watching that traffic that isn't supposed to be watching that traffic, it, it, that, your product's worthless. Your product's absolutely worthless. So um, I think that you know the, the company will survive because uh, a lot of people don't understand the way that VPNs work. They just... You know, they see the commercials or hear the podcast ads and go, hmm, that sounds like a good idea. Um, But I mean, for anybody that actually knows how this stuff works, find a different VPN. Like if you're using NordVPN, you're setting yourself up to just flush money down the toilet. Like there are plenty of other VPNs out there that that work and have higher bars of trust. Go find one and uh, don't bother with Nord. I just just don't. Wow. That's a strong opinion. Um, but I don't disagree. Yeah, it's a strong opinion. If there were only like, I don't know, three VPNs, I'd say, oh, okay, you know, this is a small incident and, you know, you just got to kind of move on because there's just not that uh, level of choices right. in the marketplace when it comes to security. There are plenty of other VPNs out there. Go find one. Right. Like, they're just, the marketplace is full of them. Go find one that, you know, lines up with, uh, the the standards that uh, cybersecurity experts want to see in a VPN and um, buy it. Like just buy a pass. I mean, I know like Wirecutter, go on Wirecutter and read their um, long uh, article on what the best VPN out there is. I mean, there are three or four choices right there that are better than what Nord is giving you. So yeah, uh, that's why I'm being strong because there's just, there are so many other choices in the marketplace that you can do better. State-sponsored Russian hackers known as Fancy Bear or Strontium, APT28, you know them by all the names, targeted at least 16 national and international organizations across three continents starting September 16th, according to Tom Burt, Microsoft's Vice President for Customer Security and Trust. That date roughly coincides with when the World Anti-Doping Agency officials told international media outlets that Russia may be banned from all international sporting events over inconsistencies at its Moscow testing facility. The World Anti-Doping Authority long has been a target of interest for Russian hackers. Jen, it's really getting harder and harder for Fancy Bear to stay under the radar. It really is. I feel like they've been in the news a lot. um, And I wonder if it's on purpose or if they really just are getting less good at what they do or we're getting better at tracking them. What I think is important with this story is understanding that the world anti-doping agency must have really, really good cybersecurity 
because this is now, I think, the third or fourth story over the past couple of years where Russia has been caught red-handed trying to tie hacks and disinformation around uh, anti-doping. And they've just been called out on the carpet and, and called out on the carpet to be like, this was pretty sloppy. I mean, for anybody that hasn't seen it, uh, go watch the movie Icarus, or the documentary Icarus on Netflix. Russia has a long history of, of trying to uh, throw the, the, the doping world into chaos and disinformation. Lots of schemes that go beyond cybersecurity. Um, go watch that. It, it shows that Russia just, they'll do whatever it is that they have to do to get their athletes in the Olympics and they still continually get caught. So yeah, um, it, it is very hard for Russia to fly under the radar in this respect. I, I mean, absolutely amazing, you know, getting caught trying to hack in again, um, really just sheds another light on, um, it's Olympians and, um, and clearly calls into question, you know, the medals in past Olympics. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, if you remember, I think the, the latest Olympics, they let Russian athletes participate, but they had to do it under like just their own sort of seal. Like it was some weird term that was just basically you're uh, an amateur athlete, but you're not representing Russia at all. So I would not be surprised if we saw that again in 2020. For the first time in its 12-year existence, Pwned will be focusing on software use in industrial environments. CyberScoop got a preview of what will go down to Miami in January when top-tier researchers will test out zero-day exploits on ICS software. One organizer called it a radical concept for ICS vendors accustomed to non-disclosure agreements. Another said he expected some new faces to show up and test their skills. Up to $250,000 in cash and other prizes will be up for grabs. Greg, Pwn just wants to hack everything, don't they? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was having a conversation with somebody that is familiar to like hacking contests and capture the flags. And they were actually, they kind of went the other way with this saying, I really don't understand why they are using industrial control systems equipment because apparently it's pretty easy to hack. And what right. they meant by that was the actual uh, PLCs or, or like the actual hardware devices, like not an ICS network overall, but they just meant those actual devices themselves. They were like, look, they're so easy to hack that the prizes should be $5. Like, that's it. Like, this is not um, hacking out of a sandbox to pop calc um, and and break Chrome and Firefox and all of the other cool right. web browser hacks or Tesla hacks that uh, happen at Pwn Own. Um, th this is, you know, going the other way. This is uh, equipment that runs on very, very old technology and that can be hacked uh, pretty easily. But that being said, that's that person's opinion. I think it's smart to include this in Pwn Own because, look, all of this stuff is all connected to the internet. And if we don't find a way to do it, we being, I shouldn't say we, if, um, you know, white hat hackers find ways to hack stuff before the black hat hackers, no matter how hard it is, that's always going to be a plus. I mean, let's find a way to do it in an ethical, uh, in an ethical arena 
and then we can avoid having it be hacked in you know actual real world and have it be a matter of life and death. Right, and you know, look, it's it's got to be. We got to have this because clearly, if it's really easy to hack into, we haven't learned our lesson yet, and we have to make those things more secure. So this makes sense to me. Right, totally agree. So two months after Imperva disclosed a data breach, the CEO of the enterprise security company reportedly has resigned. Chris Hyland left his position last week. He began the role in August 2017, according to his LinkedIn page, and led the company to a reported $2.1 billion acquisition by Toma Bravo, the American private equity firm. Imperva's chairman, Charles Goodman, will assume the interim CEO position while the board seeks a permanent replacement. Highland had been scheduled to continue as a director at the company following the deal, according to disclosure forms filed with the SEC in January. Jen, again, uh, another example of if you get hacked and you're in the C-suite, somebody's going to get axed. Well, that and also like watch how you react, right? You can't come across as anything but sorry and we're going to, like genuinely sorry, and we're going to fix this and it's not going to happen again. And I think anything short of that um, puts you on the chopping block. Especially when you are a security company. Like it's one thing if you're, I don't know, retail, media, law firm, uh, whatever. Like if you're just, you know, a company like, like I think back to a lot of the companies that have been hit by Magecart. That's really bad. But you know, you look for that and, and stuff like that happens and you can talk about it as a board and whole cyber risk conversation. If you're a security company and you're getting hacked, like that's obviously, I mean, just listen to that sentence. I'm the CEO of a security company and I got hacked. How's anybody ever going to make the product? So I'm not surprised that uh, the CEO uh, is moving on. Yeah. Just, well, if I recall, recall correctly, Greg, um, didn't he immediately post a, a blog that wasn't like super professional? Right. It, I mean, it was like, no, this is nothing. Every nothing to see here. While you know the, the fires burn behind him, everything's fine. Uh, carry on with your lives. And no, it ended up uh, being what you know the initial reports said it was. So, right. yeah, mind blowing CEO advice. Don't lie to your customers. <laughs> Maybe someone will take that advice. So on the business side, nice big list of raises over the past two weeks. Let's dive into this. Uh, Times, a Dublin-based cybersecurity automation company, raised $4.1 million in the Series A funding. Investors include Blossom Capital. Uh, Picus or Picus Security, I apologize if I botched the pronunciation there. San Francisco-based cybersecurity firm, that specializes in continuous security validation, raised $5 million in Series A funding. Early Bird led that round. Uh, Encode, another San Francisco-based provider of cybersecurity, but they focus on biometric identity platforms. They raised $10 million in seed funding. On the East Coast side of things, FireDome, a New York-based provider of cybersecurity solutions, raised $10 million in Series A funding, led by Two Sigma, and was joined by World Trade Ventures and Silver Tech Ventures. Very good security. Another company based in San Francisco, Shocker, data security company, raised $35 million in Series B. Goldman Sachs Merchant Banking Division led the round, was joined by Andreessen Horowitz and Vertex Ventures. 
Upstream Security, a California and Israel-based provider of cybersecurity for connected vehicles, raised $30 million in Series B funding. Bunch of people uh, in this round. Uh, Renault, Group Venture, Hyundai, uh, Nationwide, Charles River, uh, Gillow, and Maniv. So everybody aboard uh, Upstream's round. Uh, Aviatrix, a Oregon-based provider of networking and security services for multi-cloud enterprises, raised $40 million in Series C funding. And Tech Data agreed to acquire DLT Solutions, Virginia-based government IT solutions aggregator. I know they also do a lot with cybersecurity. Jen, busy, busy two weeks. Yeah, a lot of California-based companies. Um, You know, I think biometric identity platforms are always kind of interesting, a lot of them out there. Um, So so interesting to hear more from this company as it goes on. but I thought Firedome was kind of interesting, right? I mean, you don't we don't have a lot of um, IoT security companies out there yet, um, but it's certainly becoming a saturated with a lot of solutions. Yeah, you know, um, the, the IoT side of things with, with these companies that are, are starting up, uh, you know, it's it's really funny. I forget who I was talking to, but they were talking about IoT security in the standpoint of you know some companies actually really don't just they just don't care. They're just like, okay, you can talk about security all that you want, but if we have a security issue uh, and it's on the consumer side of things, I'm just going to tell the consumer to buy a different device or buy a new device that's been upgraded. And it's actually uh, a way for me to, you know, up my sales, which is a horrible way to look at security in my eyes, but I can see the logic with that. So good on these companies that are saying, you know what, maybe it shouldn't be that way. Maybe we should just put IoT security in from the standpoint. So good on Firedome. You know, I think really interesting that um, Volvo and Hyundai um, participated in in upstream security. I think that kind of shows us uh, where those companies are going in terms of um, connected vehicles um, and really where the industry is going. Yeah. Um, uh, And we kind of get into that with uh, in our interview talking about like, look, this is going to be an inevitability. It's just the way that things are moving. Uh, autonomous vehicles are going to be a reality, whether that reality is in three years, five years, or 20 years, it's going to happen. I mean, there are just too many people working on this and and the possibilities uh, from a number of different standpoints are are right there uh, in front of us. So people are trying to figure this out and it's going to become a reality soon. So we need to figure out a way to secure all of that. And companies like Upstream uh, obviously are, are trying to figure that out and they're uh, piquing the interest of the VCs that are dumping money into them. So with that, we will get into our interview with Jeff Massimilla, the VP of cyber at GM. Uh, he was in town uh, talking to uh, a bunch of conferences related to smart cities, had some time to stop by to talk to us about what exactly it is that he's working on, how he is involved in product rollouts with GM, and how the security of the company goes well beyond what goes into the cars. Check it out. Okay, joining us now is Jeff Massimilla, the VP of Cyber for General Motors. Jeff, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. So. 
Explain exactly how your role fits into the wider company, because GM is uh, one of the biggest companies that uh, we've had the pleasure of interviewing somebody from the cybersecurity side. So I'm wondering from your perspective, how you see your role fitting into the greater company? Yeah, um, so my role in the company is responsible for all aspects of cybersecurity. So we talk about information security, product security, manufacturing security, security of our financial operations through GM Financial, and security of our autonomous vehicle operations through our acquisition of crews. Uh, so what we're looking at, I mean, what we're motivated by is customer safety and customer privacy is our highest priority. Um, and then intertwined in all that is, you know, employee safety, maintaining operations, protecting our IP. It's, it's vast in its um, scope, but uh, we have just a great team of people that are um, able to help make sure we're protecting those things appropriately. How big is your cybersecurity team? It's about 280 people total across those five domains, but there's a lot of shared um, talent and knowledge. What we found is that resources are hard to find, talent is hard to Mm -hmm. find, and we find great talent just because they might sit in one area doesn't mean they can't be used for their their knowledge and capabilities across all those domains. And what has been your concentration? Lately, um, so my concentration lately um, definitely focused on the continued tech growth in our industry. So, whereas General Motors might have been, you know, considered a metal bending company a hundred years ago, we're a tech company today. Mm-hmm. We got connected products out there. We got autonomous vehicles out there. Um, so we're really focused on that connected product, that customer experience, that autonomous vehicle. But then even the kind of the core things that are even emerging within the cyberspace of industrial controls, you know, the manufacturing or the security posture of our manufacturing facilities. So we kind of have this forward-looking uh, tech look, and then we have the, the more traditional aspects of information security and industrial control security as well. So you rattled off at the beginning there all the things that cybersecurity oversees, but I'm wondering how do the threats that you see differ between, you know, the physical vehicle and all the connected services uh, that GM touches? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Because in, you know, if you think about information security, it's pretty mature, right? Um, there's a there's a there's a wide ranging um, set of attacks and threat actors, and we're, I won't go into the details of those. But we see you know nation state level attacks in our information security world on a daily basis. Um, when you go into the product space and the autonomous vehicle space. I think what you see is you still see a lot of research activity there, which is excellent. We embrace researchers through bug bounty programs, through you know hiring them as, as often as we can. Um, but what you see is them trying to raise awareness in that environment, getting ahead of a real fielded attack on a product. But I think that's imminent, and I think that's imminent in the standpoint of um, you know maybe something like along the lines of a ransomware attack in that environment. Um, so again, protecting customer safety and privacy is is our highest priority there. When you get into the other side of things, maybe the industrial control side, it's interesting because you see kind of the traditional IT attacks manifesting themselves in the industrial controls environment through the use of IT solutions there. They aren't necessarily targeted there, but you see that they're kind of impacting that environment. So um, you have to put a little bit of a twist on what you're doing to protect that environment. Um, But at the same time, um, uh, it's it's a really important environment for us to focus on. I want to focus on something and ask you something that because we don't get to hear it from the actual companies that use them, the bug bounty side yeah. of things. How helpful has that been for you? Because when GM rolled out their bug bounty program, that, that made waves. That was a big thing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, I don't know how far uh, into it are you. Is it a year, year and a half? Yeah, we're, we're, so we're a few years into okay. it. Um, but we're a few years into it from a disclosure program perspective. So, okay. So thank you for pointing that out. I think it was, um, we were very excited to do that. I think, again, a testament to 
we're a tech company now. We have to act like a software company, act like a tech company, embrace the research community. We were really excited to roll that out a few years ago um, and got a lot of great support from it. And what we found was we really wanted to understand how to work with researchers and didn't want to assume that we knew how to work with researchers. I think that's something that a lot of companies struggle with. So we took that time to, to learn how to work with them and then started that bug bounty program. Um, and that program has been great. So I mean, we had a group of researchers, actually it was just late last year, our first time we invited them out to our tech center. We hooked them up with our red team. We put them in our red team lab, taught them about vehicles and electronics, sent them away with hardware and things that would be a barrier to entry for researchers. You know, they don't want to go out and buy a car and, and brick it and have to take it back to the dealership. So we gave them the stuff they needed to take back to their um, you know, environment, do the work they needed to do, and then um, you know, put up um, the right sums of money to motivate them for finding bugs within our system. So um, it was just a really, really great experience. And I would say super important to our program. Um, we can hire a lot of great talent. Um, you know, we're, it, it, it's pretty cool if you can get the job of hacking a Camaro. I mean, you're going to be pretty motivated to come to Absolutely. To um, but at the same time, that talent we can't hire, we've got to embrace it. And that's the way that we embrace it. Have you dropped a car at DEF CON? And is it something you would do if you haven't? So we, so we, we haven't yet. We've done a lot at DEF CON. Um, I would just say, you know, hold out. We're going to do some more things here at a lot of the big okay. events coming up. Okay. So, um, but we've done a lot of great things out there, I think, already. And um, it's just such, such a great environment to work with the researchers. And you just rolled out a digital platform. What are the security features you put in it? We did. So we just launched our secure digital platform for our vehicles. Um, it is the first architecture that I will say is designed with security in mind. And I'm going to qualify that in a second. But it's really the future of our company. I mean, you look at the future of our company is our vision of zero crashes, zero emissions, zero congestion. And if you think about all of those things, it requires a lot of technology to make that happen. And underpinning all of that technology has to be a strong security posture. So we brought in that platform and we've been doing security. We've been adding security into our platforms for a long time. Um, but this is the first one with it built right in. And so we talk about what is it? It's a you know, it's a it's a stronger level of authentication, encryption, um, communication. We're actually doing secure communication on the platform itself for safety critical systems. Um, we're able to do intrusion detection on that. We're able to do more over the year updates to respond to vulnerabilities that we might find. Um, we're it's just um, if you I guess if you to put it all in a nutshell. It's designing security in so looking at that architecture from every aspect of security and making sure we have the right abilities to take our company to the next level. So, it, you know, you're spending all of that time on protecting the, the software and everything that is really directly influenced by the company. But you talked about autonomous vehicles and 5G is close uh, and it's coming online in some cities and that's going to revolutionize the way that uh, the population uses cars. So. I'm wondering what are some of the risks and what are some of the indirect threats that you see with autonomous vehicles and 5G that you're trying to think ahead and program into cars as all of that comes online? It's a really good question. I mean, the autonomous vehicle is, it's a connected vehicle, right? But it's, it's like a connected vehicle on steroids, right? There's a lot more connectivity. There is sensors and um, sensor fusion that happens that wouldn't happen on a traditional vehicle. Um, you know, at, at the highest level, an autonomous vehicle is simply a connected vehicle. So the same risks exist on a connected vehicle as exists on an autonomous vehicle, but the visibility of it and then the amount of capability just takes it to a whole new level. So when we look at this, we're looking at, you know, it really it's a system safety standpoint, right? So how is the vehicle making decisions? 
and then ensuring that we have the right level of both security and redundancy in that decision making, as well as our ability to, what I'd say, fail safe or go to degraded states um, in that capability once we understand that something might be in our environment and then be able to respond to it. So whether it's the sensors, whether it's the 5G, I mean, we're out here today for the, the City Labs event um, uh, as well. And, um, you know, the, the connected city, the smart city becomes a really critical part um, of our ecosystem as well, which is um, just amazing how large this ecosystem is. Do you see security becoming part of car ownership? Like you get your oil changed, you get your tires fixed, rotated, whatever. Do you see people going in for some sort of security update as well? Well, I would hope that we can do all those transparent to the customer. Um, make sure that the security posture, not only when the vehicle comes out of the our factory is at, at the appropriate security posture, but then as we identify vulnerabilities over the over time, we're able to update you know that vehicle and, and keep it at the appropriate security posture for the customer. You know, what I would say is, it will be interesting to see um, as customers get more connectivity and more levels of autonomy in their vehicle, um, their awareness to the security posture of the vehicle. Um, again, we take it as the highest priority as customer safety and, and, and the privacy of their data. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how customers relate back to their, you know, relate back to their own vehicle um, and and just um, you know take this take this seriously. At the same time, I think customers play a big part of this, right? I think every one of us in our daily lives. Security is on all of us to be smart about what we're doing and be vigilant in how we're interacting with, whether it's our phone, our car, our smart thermostats, thermostat, whatever it may be. So um, it's going to be an interesting road ahead here. So I want to go back to something that we were talking about uh, beforehand. Um, you know, GM has their uh, corporate teams, obviously, and, and the corporate side of things. But when you go to a car dealership, they might have GM on the front or, or whatever uh, car dealership wants to throw up, whatever car brand wants to throw up. But um, a lot of those are franchised. A lot of them are independent uh, companies. So how do you uh, interface with them from a security perspective? Because you still have to work with them, obviously, but they are independent franchises where you don't have to mandate security. So how does that conversation work out as franchises get stand up? Yeah, that's correct. And it's an interesting topic. I mean, and I don't want to overplay the word ecosystem because I just talked about an ecosystem as a <laughs> place that gets product, but then there's another ecosystem of you know, all of the suppliers that help make our business possible and technology partners, then, you know, the core business all the way down to the, the dealerships, which are the, the, the front end for our customers. So as you said, a lot of those are franchised. They aren't owned by General Motors, mm -hmm. but they are the front end to our customers. And therefore, it's a really important part of our uh, overplayed use of the word ecosystem. So um, uh, that being said, you know, we're, we take that very seriously and we're doing a lot to really recognize that a company like General Motors or a tech company that's out there has a hard enough time getting cyber talent in their environment to expect that some of these small businesses out there can get that same cyber talent is probably an overreach. So one of the things that we're doing, we are um, one of the members of Cyber Readiness Institute. It's a, a nonprofit organization that um, it's providing small and medium, or I'd say kind of like small, small and small businesses, um, cyber solutions and guidance uh, free of charge. So we're looking at that or we're working with them to provide those solutions down to and rolling that out to our dealerships. And, and these are things just like, you know, how do you use strong passwords? How do you patch your systems? How do you make use of multi-factor authentication? So how do you bring those things in your environment to take your cyber posture and raise it significantly just with a set of a few things that can help um, um, make that stronger? Because again, our weakest link is the weakest link that we have, right? So we got to make sure that we're addressing all areas of that 
again, ecosystem. As a consumer, should I be more concerned about that or should I be more concerned about um, someone hacking into my OneStar or OnStar, I guess it's called? Yes, OnStar. <laughs> um, no, so I, I, um, I don't think, so, so again, with, the, with our focus on this, um, we're looking at it end to end for the customer. So we're taking the same level of priority to every aspect of that ecosystem to say, how do we make sure our customers are safe and how, how we make sure their data is private? Um, uh, you know, I would, I would say from a concern perspective, um, vigilance is important. So we're, we're doing everything to create a defensive posture, a detection capability, and a response capability throughout that environment. Um, but really, having our customers, you know, again, be smart about what they're doing. You know, don't plug USB sticks into your car that um, maybe you found in a parking lot and said, Great music, <laughs> great music, play me or something, right? Um, so you know, just, I feel like that happens more than we think. I, well, it may, right? Or I mean, I, you know, you may go to like a mall on uh, you know the day before a holiday and they hand out like music to you or something, right? On the USB stick. So just I think be smart about what you're doing and um, and we're here to to help make sure you're safe. So Jeff, uh, on Securiosity, we end every interview with a random question. Uh, what is your favorite mode of transportation that's non-GM? My favorite mode of transportation is non-GM. It might be by a forcing function. My favorite mode of transportation is flying because I have to fly, I think, all around the world for the role that I'm in. Um, but uh, I think it's based on a forcing function more than, uh, more than anything else there. Okay, great. Jeff? No, I've got one more question for oh, you. I really okay. want to know um, what kind of car you drive. What kind of car do I drive? Yeah. So currently I drive a Cadillac CT6. Okay. Um, and it is an excellent Can vehicle. I have one of those? <laughs> it, is a, it is a great vehicle. I'd encourage you to get one for sure. <laughs> great. Jeff, really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thank you very much. Thank you both for Thank the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks again to Jeff for joining us. Um, Jen, I mean, the, the Cadillac CT6. Oh, yeah. I, I definitely uh, am all about the Cadillacs. I'm glad he came in. I know he's GM. I know they have a host of different cars, but Jeff had a Cadillac pin on. So it, it's very clear what his favorite brand is with the company. Well, and as we were leaving, um, as we were leaving CyberScoop, he was telling me that once the kids out of our house, he was telling me what kind of Corvette was was going to get replaced. That so also really interesting. Very very nice. One thing before we leave you for this week: during Cyber Week, our partners at State Scoop released a really really interesting website. We've taken all the ransomware incidents that have hit small cities in America, not just small cities, I should say, just cities in America in general, and have tabulated what type of ransomware they've been hit with, when it occurred, whether somebody has paid, and we laid it all out in a map. Uh, we had a big unveil during Cyber Week, but if you happen to miss that, do check out the map. Go to statescoop.com. The ransomware map can be found on the site. Definitely a resource we want you guys to use if you're tracking ransomware, if you're interested in ransomware, if you want to show your executive suite or your superior, any sort of person that needs to be educated on ransomware, they should definitely check out this map and see how cities across the country have been hit. So with that, we will see you next week. Have a good week, everyone. As always, stay curious. <laughs>